hopefully every every pastor, every preacher who stands up to open up God's Word and preach a passage and exposit it, kind of work through it verse by verse. Hopefully that guy has taken the time over the last few days or weeks or however long he's been preparing to really internalize, really get into that text and um, and and really make it a part of who he is. And it's interesting how different events and different circumstances can go on really in all of our lives, not just for me as, as the preacher, but in all of our lives, how God orchestrates and moves things so that his word, I'm, I'm speaking specifically now to to, uh, to believers, how his word then takes really a, a life of its own, take on, takes on a life of its own and just begins to really work its way into into your heart and soul in a different in a different way. And I've been really excited about this passage of scripture, this chapter. Really I think the whole book of Revelation hinges on chapter four and five. Um, it sets the context for what's going on in heaven, what's going to go on eternally. Um, it, it's I've been excited about being here. I've also though had these things going on, Susan and I Really, for the last almost two weeks, we have been waiting on her sweet mother to go to heaven. Now, she loves the Lord, and we have been literally just sitting by her bedside, waiting for her to hear Jesus say, come up here and see, which he says in this text. We're, we're waiting on that. So... It's been really exciting to me to to work through this. It's been, in some ways, anxious, you know. It, you're sitting by the bedside of someone that you love dearly, and you want this for them. And I want this for you. I want this for every person who God entrusts to our spiritual care. And see, we are like sheep. We're so easily distracted and led astray, aren't we? The Word says all of us like sheep have gone astray. We have sought everyone our own way. And we need to be refocused. We need to again see what is real. The ultimate reality is our Creator God who made us and sustains us according to His good will. He is on His throne and everything, everything, everything that happens in this universe happens under that sovereign care. And if we don't see that reality with the eyes of our heart, with, with the eyes of faith, if we don't see that reality, and listen, if that reality is not the, the true north of our lives, there's a good chance our lives will be shipwreck. Because we just go chasing this and that, and listening to this and that, and fearing this and that, and loving and worshiping this and that. When this, what we have in Revelation 4 and 5, is the only one that should have the throne of our heart 
Because he already has the throne of the universe. It is his. And so for, for eight weeks now, we've been working our way through these letters to the churches from, from Revelation. And Jesus has been walking among the churches. He's been walking among us. Sometimes commending us, sometimes condemning us. All of the time revealing himself and calling us who have the ears to hear to listen and repent and turn to him. And during that time, we've become familiar, I think, with Jesus among us. Uh, You know... The old hymn says, he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me that I am his own. What a friend we have in Jesus. We love that hymn. And we love the reality and the idea of Jesus walking among us. But here's, here's the concern that I, I have for myself and for all of us, is that we've become so familiar with this Jesus walking among us that we've really lost sight of who he is. We've lost sight of 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 his majesty and his glory. And God willing, that's about to change. That'll change in these two chapters. And what we have here is the limits of human language. Human words are used to describe what is indescribable. And John has what all of us should have and all of us should move toward, work toward, which is a biblical perspective that helps him understand all that he sees through a set of biblical eyes. And he knows the Old Testament well. And he sees this vision that Jesus opens up for him to see. And as the Holy Spirit gives him those words to describe what it is he's seeing, he is recalling in his mind, I believe, what he read before in Isaiah and in Ezekiel and in Daniel. And while there's differences of those visions that those prophets saw, all together they give us this picture of this majesty and glory of God that really is indescribable. It's strange when you read it. Oh my word. It's just some weird stuff in Ezekiel. Okay? It's just weird. But here's the point. God the Creator and Christ the Redeemer are worthy of all worship, all honor, all praise, and all glory. And that is the goal of creation. And the throne of God is the center of that reality. And from that throne comes thunder and lightning and and loud sounds. And for some, wrath. And for others, healing and comfort. And, And we're introduced to that throne. And so... What we hear and see in these two chapters is foundational to the rest of the book of Revelation. And it is foundational to your life today and my life. What we read in these passages here is a heavenly perspective of there and then, also of here and now. And this perspective will lift up our mundane lives and give them purpose and direction like nothing else will. It's, it's, it will do that. And so John looked and there's a door standing open in heaven. There's an open door and Jesus gives him a command or an invitation. Come up here and see, come up here and I will show you. So look at that first part of chapter four. So here's Jesus, the one who came down to earth and walked among us now inviting us up. 
to come up there and to see. And through the enabling of the Holy Spirit, to see something we couldn't see before. Through the eyes of our hearts being enlightened, as Paul says in, his, in Ephesians, we're able to see what is, what is planned, what's going to take place. So Jesus opens the door, okay? A door standing open in heaven. And, and behold, there's another word. We say that. I, saw, I said that word a lot in Isaiah because we saw it a lot. But that's just not a word we use much. Behold. You know, usually if somebody walks up to you and says, behold, you're going, what's up? That's kind of weird. But there's, there's an unveiling. There's an unveiling taking place. And when we hear behold, we need to pay attention, okay? Behold, John says, a door standing open in heaven. This is the same one who in Revelation 3, the words of the Holy One, the true one who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut and shuts and no one will open, right? So this is Jesus standing there with an open door. An unveiling is taking place. Same thing happened for Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 1, the heavens were opened and I saw visions of God. That's the only way you're going to see those visions, is if the heavens are opened, if that door is opened. See, we have our sense of sight, we have our sense of smell, we have our sense of hearing, we can taste, we can touch, and those five senses are worthless when it comes to spiritual realities. They do us no good. Which, again, is the reason Paul was so filled with praise when he was exalting the grace of God that opens the eyes of our hearts so that we can see the hope that we have in Christ, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. That's what we have before us here. And it's seen through the eyes of our hearts. It's seen through eyes of faith. He opens the door, and then he invites us up, okay? He invites John up. Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. Jesus is the only one that can open that door. He's the only one that can issue that invitation, or in this case, it's command. It's command for him to come up. And he does it. John says, I heard the voice of one who sounded, who was speaking to me, he said, who I had heard speaking like a trumpet. That goes back to chapter 1. So I don't know what the voice of Jesus exactly sounded like to John. Is it loud and clear? Is it musical? Is it something that's like reveille and waking him up? I don't know. But it's loud and clear like a trumpet. And he hears that voice again speaking. And this command says to come up and I will show you something. I'm going to give you a different perspective, John. I'm going to give you a different vision of anything that you've seen up until now. I want you to leave the flat surface of earth, John, and come up here and see reality. You want some of that? I need that. I, I need, I've had enough of here. All right? I, I've, I've seen this. I, I need to see this. Come up here and I will show you what must take place. So he reveals this plan. Okay? And this is not something that might take place. This is not something that could take place. This must take place. These are the words of the same God who said, this is the plan determined for the whole earth. This is the hand stretched out over all the nations from Isaiah 14. For the Lord Almighty has purposed. Who can thwart it? His hand is stretched out. Who is able to turn it back? Jesus says, come up here, John. I'm going to show you what is planned. 
And like every other command in the Bible, like every other thing that God calls us to do, if he does not enable us to do it, we are sunk. We're in trouble. And so it says that next, I was in the spirit and behold, again, a throne stood in heaven. So Jesus comes and he speaks to him like a trumpet. He shows him an open door. He commands him to come up and then he enables him to obey that command. And the same thing happened to Ezekiel. As he spoke to me, the spirit entered me and set me on my feet. And I heard him speaking to me, Ezekiel chapter two. And so here he does this for John as he does for everyone else. It's him who wills in us and works in us to do what he calls us to do. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful that God gives me what I need to do what he calls me to do. So there's this picture. The door is opened, and it's opened to reveal. Let's look at that revelation. Let's look at at what he sees. And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. So here's this, there's this central focus, a throne And a majestic one upon it. That's the focus of this passage of scripture. God and his reign, which is symbolized by that throne, are the center of the created world. And not just that throne, but the proper response to it. Okay? What do we do with this? What do we do with this that we see before us? And so throne is going to be mentioned 52 times in the New Testament. 52 times we see that word. And it's a picture. It's a seat. It's the center of authority, of rule and reign, all of those things. So we see it 52 times in the New Testament. 38 of those are in the book of Revelation. So we saw it in chapter 1, and we're going to see it throughout. Throughout the book is the throne of God. It's where he rules and reigns. It's what his enemies want. And it's what ultimately conquers. So 38 times in the book of Revelation... Almost half of those are in these two chapters. Eighteen times in chapters four and five, we see this reference to it is a big deal. And the emphasis is on the sovereign rule and reign of God over all of human history in the past, today and in the future. That's the picture that we have here. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over it. That's what David tells us in Psalm 103. So let's think for just a second. I want you to take some time and just flip through these passages with me, okay? I'm not going to read the whole thing, but I want us to get a context for what's going on in John's mind, his biblical perspective of what he's seeing. And to do that, we go back to Isaiah, we go to Ezekiel, and we go to Daniel, all right? And I encourage you, read Isaiah 6. I posted something earlier this week. Read Isaiah 6. Read Ezekiel 1 and 2. Read Daniel 7. I'm not going to read all of those passages today, but if you read those along with what you see in Revelation 4 and 5, we begin to get this amazing, strange, heavenly picture of God's majesty and glory, of his rule and his reign. So so just to help us with our context, Isaiah chapter 6, just flip back there right quick. If you're using a pew Bible, it might be easier for you to use a pew Bible. It's on page 571. Isaiah 6, I'm not going to wait on you to find it, just catch up. 
In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole, earth, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, or I am undone. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. That's Isaiah's vision of this heavenly throne room. Now flip forward to the book of Ezekiel, okay? In the Pew Bible, it's on page 692. And I'm not going to read chapter 1. I'm just going to, I just want to read starting in verse 22, okay? And now let's go to 26. Flip down to 26. Ezekiel 1, chapter 26. So he has these heavenly creatures. Yes, they are strange. All right. He has these wheels within wheels that are burning the throne of God. It's majestic. It's powerful. It's but it gets down to verse 26 and above the expanse over their heads. There was a likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire and seated above the likeness of a throne was a likeness with a human appearance. And upward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, gleaming metal, like the appearance of fire enclosed all around. And downward from what had the appearance of his waist, I saw, as it were, the appearance of fire, and there was brightness all around him, like the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud of the day of rain, and so was the appearance of the brightness all around. And such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord. And I saw it, and when I saw it, I fell on my face. And I heard the voice of one speaking. And then Ezekiel is called in chapter 2. All right. Then finally over in Daniel chapter 7. And we'll look at this passage next week as well. Okay. Daniel chapter 7 starting in verse 9. Daniel has this vision of these creatures as well. But in verse 9 his focus as ours need to be is on this throne. Daniel 7 9. And as I looked thrones were placed and the ancients of days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him, and thousands, thousands served him. And ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court set in judgment, and the books were opened. There's this majesty, this holiness this picture of God seating on his throne. And that's what this, and, and John sees that. Now, the Apostle Paul had a similar vision to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. He did not have permission to share it. Thankfully, Ezekiel does. And so does Daniel. So does John. So does Isaiah. Paul couldn't. God didn't give him permission to share it. I'm glad John did. Because we need to see it. And we need to see the one seated on the throne, ruling over heaven. This throne room is frightening and it's amazing. And yet the focus back in Revelation is just one sentence. Okay, it's, it's, it, there's not much there, really, of the one who is seated on the throne. Look at how he describes him. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian 
and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now, the word appearance there is important. This is not what God looks like. This is just a description, a symbolism of his majesty and his glory. No one can see God and live. The scriptures are clear on that. He told Moses that when Moses asked to see him. No one can see me and live. So it's the two words in the Greek language there are a vision like something. So this is the appearance of this is what it this is how God appeared to John in this vision. OK, remember Ezekiel, I saw something that looked like. All right. So this is the appearance of this is this is what we see. This is what how God reveals himself here. And, and first, there's these gemstones. All right. Some of which we haven't heard of, except that they're they're here in the Bible. Jasper, carnelian, an emerald, I know what an emerald is. A jasper is a gemstone. Later on in the book of Revelation, it describes the holy city coming down out of heaven, the glory of God. And it says like jasper, like a clear crystal. So some say it's a diamond. Some say it's just, it's something that reflects light. You hold a diamond up to the the light and and it just, the prism and the, the luminosity of that glory just becomes visible in, a, in an amazing way. So what John sees is described as this, this reflection of glory. And then there's a carnelian. Again, that's various colored gemstones. And then he describes this rainbow that has the appearance of emerald. Okay, so there's this green rainbow over the throne. And Ezekiel saw these colors around the throne as well. Reflection of God's glory. So these gemstones symbolize, I believe, just an unparalleled worthiness, worth, value, glory, beauty of God. It's, it's terminology that while we may not know the specific stone, we can understand the value and worth of these gemstones. It's the same. Some of these stones are in the ephod, the, 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 the dress that the priest wore in the Old Testament. This value that God placed on each of the 12 tribes represented in these stones. And we'll see these stones over and over in the book of Revelation. But, but, but look at the focus here. Now all of a sudden it changes away from these stones and the one who is seated on the throne. And all of a sudden we see the one seated on the throne through the response of those around the throne. Okay? We're not allowed to really look at him, but we are allowed to see how these around the throne are responding to him. It's important that we see this. Now, in chapter 5, we're going to get a clearer picture of Christ, the one who has purchased our redemption. There's going to be more detail there. Again, it's, it's symbolic, okay? But it's important that we see that. So these, these, these stones talk about this beauty, this glory, this worth of God, but there's others in the room, okay? And next comes these 24 elders, 24 thrones with 24 elders seated on those thrones, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. What in the world? Good question. I don't know. All right. And if you're going to keep score at home of how many times you hear that from me through the book of Revelation, we'll get a long legal pad. Okay. I'm just not sure. I mean, there's a literally one commentator said there are 25 different interpretations of what these elders could mean. Twenty five. 
Why not just round it off to 24? Okay? I mean, because that's how many of them there are. David tells us that there were 24 orders of the Levitical priesthood when you read in Chronicles. All right? We're also told in Chronicles that there were 24 Levite gatekeepers of the temple. We're told that there are 24 in Second Chronicles, 24 worship leaders in the temple. So clearly this number 24 is significant, if nothing else, to point us to worship. To point us to the significance of what is going on in this throne room. And how they are responding to God as he is on the throne. Now later on in Revelation 21, we're going to see 12 apostles and 12 Old Testament patriarchs taking places of prominence. In the New Jerusalem. And they are representative there, I believe, of the church, of the new priesthood of believers. So whether it's this picture of worship from the Old Testament, whether it's a picture of 12 of these apostles and 12 Old Testament patriarchs, I do not think that these 12 elders are redeemed people. I don't think that they're part of the redeemed. The reason for that comes in Revelation 7, where the redeemed are a part of this heavenly Worship service, but they're separate from these elders. I'm going to fall back on what Greg Beal says. He's a whole lot smarter than I'll ever hope to be. And he's written a commentary on Revelation about that big, okay? Now, he wrote a shorter one that's about that big. It's amazing. It's called the Shorter Revelation, Commentary on Revelation, and it's close to 400 pages. So that's the Cliff Notes version, all right? I have that one, too. Here's what Beal says. Remembering that in the letters, the angels were identified as representative of the seven churches. Remember the letters to the seven churches? He wrote to the angel of that church. So Beale says, remembering that those were representatives of the churches. And then in Daniel 10 through 12, angels represent the nations. Beale says, the elders here are to be identified as angelic beings representing the church as a whole, including the saints of the Old Testament. He says, if the four living creatures, which we're about to see, are heavenly representatives of all animate life throughout creation, then the elders are probably heavenly representatives of God's people. Okay? So there's these representatives called elders on these 24 thrones, these positions of ruling and leading with God, clothed in white pictures of their righteousness, their holiness, Crowns of authority, crowns of rule, they are there in this place. And this place is not quiet. Look at verse 5. Throne, from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbling and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the spirit, seven spirits of God. It reminds me of the Exodus, right? When the children of Israel came to Mount Sinai. And the rumbling and the sights and the sounds coming from the holiness of God on that mountain, it scared them to death, literally. They said, Moses, we don't even want to see this. This is not a quiet place, all right? There's no quiet contemplation going on here. There is heartfelt worship, and it is just flowing toward the throne as this power flows from the throne. So there's this power of God and, and it should cause us to fear. It should cause us to just pause for a second and say, wait a minute. Thunder and lightning and peals of thunder, rumblings coming from this. What's going to unfold from Revelation 7 on is going to be the wrath of God flowing out. I believe symbolized by this rumbling of thunder and this power pouring out. And it is a fearsome thing to see. It is fearsome. 
And it's going to be pouring out of the throne. Ezekiel saw fire and burning wheels. Daniel saw burning fire. Isaiah saw smoke in the throne room of God. All of this is a picture of his power. And it should evoke from us fear and dread of his holiness. And then before the throne were seven burning torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now this is the same symbolic representation of the Holy Spirit we saw in chapter 1. In Revelation 1-4, grace to you and peace from him who was and who is and who is to come. And from the seven spirits who are before the throne. So there was a triune greeting right there in chapter 1. From God, the Father, from the Holy Spirit and from the Son. And so this seven, this number of perfection, is this picture of the Holy Spirit. One commentator said this, by the light, by that light, by these seven torches, by this, if you will, the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I believe that's what this depicts. By that light, the Holy Spirit is saying, apart from me, you readers would know nothing about this. By the revelation of the Holy Spirit alone, we see the light of the glory of God in heaven now. So the Holy Spirit is there and he is lighting it up for us to see and illuminating for us this revelation. And then notice what it says next. And, And then before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass. Like crystal. Interesting. One commentator I've been reading talks about how the Jewish people were a whole lot like folks I know from Watauga County. They are land lovers. Okay? These legs under me, they are, they are mountain legs. They are not sea legs. All right? The Jews, it seems, were like that, so they say. I love the ocean. I love to stand on the beach. I love to play in the water. I love to body surf. I love, to, I love the water. I love to be in the water like up to here. But when I get on the water, it gets ugly. All right? I'll just leave it at that. Okay? Bring your buckets. It gets ugly. All right? And evidently, the, the, this commentator said that the Jewish people are that way. They're, they're not seafaring people. And the sea for them represents chaos and violence and fear, and the unknown. And when you read Daniel, you'll see that it's out of a churning sea that these creatures rise up. Later on in Revelation, it will be from a churning sea, from a tumultuous sea, that the Antichrist will be revealed. And so from these stormy seas and from Satan standing on the shore of a turbulent just churning sea. One commentator talks about how this represents a churning humanity. He says billions and billions of people churning rebellion and disorder fighting against Almighty God. That's, that's the idea of this churning that we'll see later on in the book of Revelation. And Isaiah speaks of that in Isaiah 57. The wicked are like a tossing sea which cannot rest, whose waves cast up mire and mud. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. But what do you see here? It's, as, it's a mirror. It's as calm as a pond. I see a sea of glass like crystal. I just love to think in my mind of, of this picture of God just like Jesus did the waves. Be still 
and they're quiet. And here in his rumbling and his holiness and the thunder and the lightning, there is a calmness. There is a peace that just surrounds the throne of God. Like God has just stilled those churning, rebellious waters and established his throne over the top of them. And so here's this crystal clear sea. In Revelation 22, there will be a crystal clear river flowing, bringing life to the nations from this throne. Okay? So there's this contrast there, this sea of glass. I love that picture. I can handle an ocean like that, okay? Just, I think I'd be okay there, all right? Now look at these creatures that come up next. And around the throne, there in verse 6, And on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Wow. There's this picture of these these creatures. Now, again, the symbol is, what are these things? Well, it says they are creatures, okay? They are created beings. It's similar to the seraphim that we saw in Isaiah with the six wings. Ezekiel saw something like that that we did not read. It has a different number of wings. Ezekiel's perspective on it was different from John's. Ezekiel saw creatures with four faces. John only sees creatures with one appearance. But whatever they are, they are creatures, okay? They are made by God. And we will see they were made for a purpose, right? To worship him. And so what is it that they represent? What is it that they symbolize? Well, we see that they see, okay? I mean, you make the point twice that they are covered with eyes. Some say that they have the responsibility of protecting the throne, and this is a picture of them seeing and providing that protection for the throne. So they're they're these seeing creatures. They serve, okay? They fly. They do what they're told to do, and Ezekiel tells us that they do it quickly. Again, in Ezekiel's passage, they they fly straight and they fly fast. And they do exactly what they're told to do. So they're, they're servants. They do what they're called to do. I believe that they are pictures, if you will, symbolic of the very best that God has done in his creation. There's the lion, the king of the jungle, and all of his all of his authority and all of his majesty that we see that. There is an ox. Strong as an ox. What does that mean? He is the strongest of the domesticated animals. He serves with strength. He serves with power. He's able to do what he is called to do. There is the man. I saw one. and This is the only one with a face, okay? The third living creature with the face of a man. Well, man is the crown of creation, are we not? We are, if you will, the, the face of God's majesty. We are made in his image. So there's the man there, and then there is this eagle. And the eagle was representative of authority and power. The text tells us that it, this eagle was, was one that flew swiftly, like an eagle in flight. And so here's this picture of, of authority and majesty and strength and swiftness and being able to fly. One commentator said this, These creatures are strong like a lion, serve like an ox, see like a man, and are swift like an eagle. Each in its particular appearance gives witness to the greatness and glory of God in his creation. No creature is as strong as God is. 
No creature serves as he does. No creature sees as does he. No creature is as swift as he. But listen, these elders and these creatures are not the point. Okay? Don't get caught up in what they look like. Do get caught up in what they are doing. That's the point. Do get caught up in what they are doing. These are created beings, and they were created for a purpose, and they were created like you and me for a singular purpose. The praise and worship of God. And that's what unfolds. Notice. Day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There are five hymns. I'll call them hymns. Five hymns in Revelation 4 and 5. Five stanzas of praise. Okay? Some of them, two of them are sung. Some are said. But we're going to call them hymns. Okay? And the first one is here in verse, in verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. These creatures that are full of eyes, these creatures that look like lion and ox and man and eagle, they are consumed with the worship of God. Jonathan Edwards calls this the chief employment of heaven. Okay? What are we going to do in heaven? Well, it's not going to be floating on clouds with little cherub wings and a harp. All right? It's going to be serving. It's going to be working. It's going to be worshiping. It's going to be, it's going to be what we were created to do before the fall, yet even more gloriously fulfilled. But what it will be will be focused on worshiping God, giving Him praise and glory, which is what we should be doing now. In our office and in our classroom and in our marriage and in, our, in all that we do. They're focused on Him. So John describes, get this picture. And I thought for just a second, I googled it and oh my word, what a dumb thing that was to do. I, I googled throne room Revelation 4 for images. And they are just stinking bizarre. All right? And I think they are so bizarre because we were never intended to paint a picture of this. This is not something that we're to put on a wall and focus on. We're seeing this with the eyes of our hearts and we're seeing the worth and glory of God. And so those pictures, you could do it if you want to, but they're just weird, okay? They are just plain weird. I, I prefer to let the Lord just reveal to us through this text what it is He wants us to recognize here. And here's what we can make out really clearly. There are concentric circles of worship going on. At the very center of it is the throne room of God. God's on that throne. We'll see next chapter that the Lamb, Christ, is there with Him. And then next in that circle are these, these creatures. All right? Next in that circle are these elders. Next in that circle, as we'll see in chapter 5, are myriads, thousands times thousands of angels, all encircling the throne and worshiping. And then later on will be the redeemed circling and worshiping. But it all flows out from the center. It's all coming out from the throne. It's all coming out from and for God. And guess what? Humanity at its best is on the edge. We're not the center of this thing, people. 
We are not the focus. We would do well to recognize that here now. Because if we don't, we won't see it then and there. He's the focus. He's at the center. And everything we do is to worship Him. And, and it's threefold holiness that's revealed there in verse 8. Just like in Isaiah chapter 6. Holy, holy. They're just repeating it back and forth. Just a concophony echoing back and forth. The holiness of God. The power of God. Look at that. The Lord God Almighty. The eternity of God who was and is and is to come. You ever thought about the doctrine of the scriptures being comforting to us? Systematic theology being comforting to us. Can I tell you it should be? Because when we talk about the eternality of God, that He was and is and is to come, that He is unchanging from then and today and forever, this was being spoken to Christians who were suffering under the hand of one Roman emperor now, and they'd been suffering under the hand of another one before him. And they were suffering under the hand of despots that would come in from one place or from another place. People who were so tired of what they were facing in the world needed to know that the God who was over all of that and in control of it was the same yesterday, today, and forever. And take comfort in that. Just rest in that fact. All right? We'll have all kinds of presidents should Jesus delay in coming back. We'll have all kinds of things going on in this world. The market will go up and it will crash. I'm not a prophet. I just know history. It's all going to fall apart. And then slowly people will start rebuilding it. Take comfort in the fact that God is holy, that he is powerful, and that he is eternal. And whenever the living creatures, this worship is contagious, okay? Whenever these strange creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. And now let me, let me pause there for just one second. I want to think about that for just a second. And I've been thinking about it a lot. I woke up at 4 o'clock this morning thinking... What do you give God who has no need? What do we give Him? He has all honor. He has all glory. He has it all. Well, we give back to Him what is His. They give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne. Again, who lives forever and ever. He is eternal. And those, that's what the creatures are doing. And guess what? It catches. It's contagious. Oh, no, another virus. This one's good. The elders catch it in verse 10. And they fall down before him who is seated on the throne. And they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they cast their crowns before the throne. So you see this? I don't know who these people are or these creatures are. I don't understand what they are. But I do know that the point of this whole chapter is summarized in verse 8 and in verse 11. Worthy are you, O Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you are the creator. And whatever exists continues to exist because you will it. Because you want it to. And so around this vision of God in this throne, the lightning, the thunder, the holiness, the majesty, he is worthy. He is worth our praise. He is worth our worship. And so we see this, and it's comforting to those who heard it from John, and it should be comforting to us. And notice that they're all worshiping, and they're all giving. They're giving accolades. They're giving him recognition. Look at verses 9 and 10 again. 
And whenever those elders fall down and worship him who is seated on the throne, they cast their crowns before the throne. There's two symbolic acts that are significant there. These, these elders are seated in authority. And they stand up. And they don't stop there. The word is they lay out flat before him. They prostrate themselves before God. There's a humility that comes from us recognizing the holiness and the worth of God. Amen? We're not at the center anymore. And they, they rise and fall before him. And then not only do they rise and fall before him, but they take the crown off. They take their achievements. They take their recognition. They take their money. They take their careers. They take their crowns. They take their achievements, their works, and they throw it down at God's feet. This is yours, Lord. This is yours. What are our crowns? Our achievements. I mean, yes, we earned these. We worked for them. We attained them. We gained them. We sacrificed for them. And we did all of those things because the same Spirit of God that enables us to rise up and see heaven with spiritual eyes gives us physical ability, right? Are we so proud that we'll not acknowledge that the breath we have in our lungs right now comes from Him? Are we so self-centered that we'll not recognize the ability we have in the muscles of our legs, even with canes and walkers, comes from him who gives us that ability? Those are our crowns, our positions, our authority, our accomplishments, our achievements, our kids, our marriages, our cars, our houses, all those. He gave them. He gave them. And we cast them back before him to say, Every good thing I would ever have, do, gain, accomplish is because of you. And the credit is yours, O oh God. The credit is yours. This isn't some, you know, crass athlete saying, I just want to thank the man upstairs. What the heck does that mean? No. This is with our lives. This is with all that we are and all that we have. We are pouring it out before God's feet and saying, this is yours. And they are doing what you and I are called to do. So don't miss the point. They throw their crowns on the ground before him and they say, worthy are you, O Lord, our God. You are worth every gemstone, every carnelian, every jasper, every diamond. You are worth every word of praise, every word of thanksgiving, every word of glory. You are worthy to receive what you already possess, glory and honor and power. And here we recognize, as they do, that you have created all things, God. There's no accidents. There's nothing that globbed up out of the mire. You created all things. And by your will, they continue to exist and they were created. So don't make the point. Don't miss it. Don't, don't miss the point. All things were created and exist by his good will, including you and me. And he is worthy of our praise and our glory for that. Let me, let me just give you a couple of, like four. There might be five if you're counting. I've got some points of application here. We'll, we'll kind of continue this, but I really appreciated something that uh, I read this week by Andy Davis down at First Baptist Durham. And this is my first point of application if you've never trusted in Jesus, I implore you to put your faith in the one that's seated on this throne. 
And here's what Brother Andy said that I, I just, man, I thought it was very insightful. I'm thankful that the Lord gave him this picture. Andy Davis says, John's journey from Rocky Patmos to the heavenly glory is a picture of the salvation of sinners. Because if you are not in Christ this morning, here's what Jesus will do for you. He will speak into your dead heart. And he will say, here is an open door. Come up here with me. And I will give you life. And that's, that's the picture. It's, just, it's so cool. His shed blood on the cross will be the focus in chapter 5. His resurrection from the tomb will be his focus in chapter 5. And because of what Jesus has done, you today have access into the throne room of God. You have what Paul says in Romans chapter 5 is access by faith into the grace in which you will stand. Come to Jesus today. Okay? Now for the church, secondly, we need to really... We should fear this one on the throne. This one from whom comes lightning and thunder and, and loud, loud power. And soon there's going to be these seven seals on this scroll. And judgment will flow out of that scroll. We will see it over and over and over. Seven bowls will be poured out and people will die. Because the judgment of God will be poured out. And when Daniel said he saw this throne flaming with fire, its wheels were all ablaze and a river of fire was flowing, coming out from before him. That's the wrath and judgment of God, church. Don't sleep through this. Don't take it casually. Don't get used to him. Greg Beale said, all heavenly beings find their significance in their placement around the throne. And all of earth's inhabitants are judged on the basis of their attitude to God's claim to rule over them from this throne. Do you hear that? Our significance comes in our placement around this throne. And our judgment will be, the judgment we receive from God will be based on how we respond to Him. So this same throne that is the throne of judgment in Revelation 22 will be the throne of healing. I so appreciated something Jason said last week as he was preaching through Jude. That beautiful benediction at the end of Jude, it's one of my favorite in all the New Testament. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before his glory, that's, that's what we're seeing here. He is able to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless before this glory with great joy. How is he going to do that? How is he going to keep you from stumbling and present you blameless? Well, this focus helps us finish. This focus in Revelation 4 and 5 helps us finish well. And one of the amazing means of grace that God gives us is this vision of himself. And with this focus, we'll be less prone to stumble and fall. With this as our focus, we'll be less prone to wander off and be caught in some sirene attraction that's only going to bring destruction. Thirdly, as fearsome as this throne is, through the one who comes in chapter 5, we can approach this throne with confidence and draw near to find the grace and the help that we need, right? Don't fear it, but don't stay away. Reverence him, but come to him. 
And then finally, just this whole picture of God being worshipped for his, the glory of his creation. Just delight in that. I, I stood yesterday. It was amazing. Just, just stood and watched in the distance this dark wall move across the valley. And you could see the lightning inside of it. You could hear the thunder miles away, you know. See the lightning count, 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004. It was about 14 miles away. Then it was 10. Then it was 5. And then the wind kicked up to what they said was about 55 miles an hour. And I stood there. And it was impressive. It was impressive. And the reason it was impressive to me, and I just foolishly stood out there in the middle of it, was because of Revelation chapter 4. And I wanted to see it so I could thank Him for it. And the same is true in the little yellow daffodils and the blooming red maples. The same is true in the grass that's greener now than it was two days ago. The same is true in the birth of that baby and in the death of that saint. Sunrise, the sunset, oh, for crying out loud, people, get outside. Get outside and see what he has made and worship him for it. And thank him because it is by his good will that you have the air to enjoy it. Okay? In him we live and we move and we have our being. And that living and that movement and that being will be so much richer and deeper with this vision of God on His throne. Let's pray. Lord God, we come to worship You today and we pray You'll help us do that, not just as we finish this service, but as we leave this place. You are worthy. You are worthy of our worship. You are holy, holy, holy. You are Lord God Almighty, all-powerful. And you are eternal. And we, we come before you right now, God, thanking you for who you are. And we pray, Lord, that you'll just deeply impress upon us the reality of who you are. So that the little sandcastles of our kingdoms and the house of cards that we built with our ideas would all just fall and be blown away by the reality of your eternal kingdom. Save those that need to be saved. And fill those who are redeemed, Lord, with this vision of you. And I pray that in your precious name. Amen.